Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. C-13 Originals. W. I'm 12 or 13 and I'm working at The Wire with Dan Sorkin, this guy who was a big radio personality in Chicago. He was like best friends with Bob Newhart and all this stuff. But he lived in Synanon. This is Jay Butler. The Wire was Synanon's internal broadcasting system. Most of the time there was a Synanon game on The Wire or a speech Chuck made. But other times it was just like a regular radio station with music and shows, like the one Jay worked on. My dad had a show too. He called himself Sergeant Radio, and he used it to flirt with my mom. But Chuck also used the wire to send messages to the community whenever he decided to. Chuck could break in at any time. So you could be doing a show and he could break in and just start talking about whatever. And Chuck breaks in and says, That asshole, Otis Butler, split and left us with his three fucking kids. Jay was one of those three kids that Chuck was yelling about. Otis Butler was his dad. He had left Synanon, leaving Jay and his siblings behind. But he took the money that their mom had left after she died from cancer. Jay felt alone, but Chuck's wife Betty was there for him. She was the mother I needed at the time. And, you know, obviously she had a lot of juice. Chuck, she introduced me to him. At some point, he started inviting me to these luncheons once a week. It was fascinating to me. I loved it. I could listen to him talk for hours. Super intelligent and was really fascinated with human beings and the human condition and what motivates people and how to motivate people. I was obviously flattered that he would invite me to these luncheons and talk to me like I was a human being. I loved him. I thought of him as a grandfather. Jay became very close with the Diedrichs, especially Chuck Jr. and his wife. She insisted that I call her mom and that I call Chuck Jr. dad. There was talk about, you know, changing your name. Jay may have thought of Chuck as his grandfather, but his grandmother, his biological one, was concerned about him and his siblings. My grandmother was exceedingly paranoid about other people taking our money She was under the impression that the people in Synanon were trying to get their hands on our money. Jay's grandmother wanted to get her grandchildren out of Synanon altogether. On March 3rd, the Marin County Grand Jury released a report criticizing Synanon for actions that have left people worried and uneasy. She had been seeing stories on the news about how things in Synanon were getting strange and authoritarian. She reached out to a lawyer named Paul Morantz. Chuck hated Paul Morantz. Morantz had developed a reputation for helping people get their loved ones out of Synanon. He was also vocal in the media. Morantz came up with a plan for how to rescue the Butler kids. Jay's grandmother made arrangements for a visit at Synanon's facility in San Francisco. And Paul Morantz made arrangements with the SFPD. Suddenly, the entire place was crawling with San Francisco Police Department people in riot gear and face shields and all this stuff. 
purportedly to rescue me from this cult. Brave grandmother rescues children from kooky cult. I think there was actually a headline exactly with those words verbatim. Jay was removed in 1978, leaving Synanon and his attachment to the Diedrichs behind. Now, more than 40 years later, he realizes that leaving when he did was probably for the best. Every now and again, Chuck would say something that was scary. Anybody who's talking shit about Synanon, someone ought to go out and get them. There was this wonderful man, Phil Ritter, and I knew that Chuck kind of had him in his crosshairs. Phil Ritter was the man who left Synanon to try and stop Chuck's vasectomy edict. He reported it to the police and tried to take legal action. None of it worked, and it made him an enemy. He's trying to take down Synanon. Everything we've worked for, blood, sweat, and tears. And this guy's trying to destroy all of that. That's one of the names that seem to come up constantly. Bill Ritter, Bill Ritter, Bill Ritter. I was worried that I was becoming part of a crime family. My name is Sari Crawford, and this is The Sunshine Place. And I keep thinking of the militant posture, militant defenses. Don't tread on me. I think that is what we must do. This is a recreation of Chuck from a tape speech called Synanon's New Religious Posture. You've heard parts of it throughout this podcast. It's the moment when Chuck declared that violence was not only permissible, it was encouraged. It was core to the Synanon religion. The tape was made in 1977. That was my parents' last year in Synanon. That's when Betty died and Chuck decided everyone should change partners. And when Time Magazine called Synanon a kooky cult. That's when the violence started getting out of control. Here's Ron Cook. He was the accountant who became president of Synanon. The truth was there were a lot of people in Synanon, maybe a majority, who were turn-the-other-cheek kind of people. And Chuck was talking about it. He says, the problem with Synanon is we're living here in the middle of the country. And someday a motorcycle gang will come in here and rape the women and kill people and destroy the facilities. And everybody will just sit around and do nothing. And so Chuck says, why don't we get some people trained? We're going to build our own security department. Buddy Jones wasn't a turn-the-other-cheek kind of person. He spoke in an earlier episode about going from NFL hopeful to drill sergeant in the punk squad. And he was ready and willing to defend Synanon. This group of guys came by one night, and about three or four of our women were just walking. And these guys pulled up in a car and started calling them, everything you wouldn't want your wife or your friends or your relatives called. But what could we do? So we jump in a car and we follow these guys all the way down the hill. They finally pull over and we confront them. They pull shotguns on us, told us to get the fuck out of here. They made a mistake. They had the shotgun out the window. And I grabbed the shotgun. And I said to the guy, I'm gonna take your own shotgun and shoot your fucking head off if you ever do this again. And he talked his buddy into putting his gun down. And we said, listen, don't ever come back. 
Don't mess with Synanon people. They'll come after you. Mike Kimball, who worked for the board of directors and was responsible for taping their meetings, remembers when Chuck started becoming more vocal about security and more militant. We don't want anybody coming on our facility, goddammit. That's what he would say. You know, we're just not going to let them. And at that point, he said, I don't want anybody who comes on our property to leave unless we interrogate them. Donna Cardinal learned this the hard way. She was a newlywed, and her husband, Tom, had been a Synanon member until he split. When they got married, he wanted Donna to see the place that had saved his life. We were just going to drive in a little ways and turn around and leave. As soon as we entered their property, there was people behind us. And the next thing we know, two vans had pinned us in, like they came around us really fast and pinned us in so we couldn't leave. Somebody recognized him right away, pulled him out and said, what are you doing here? And they dragged him out of the car and took him down the road. They dragged, you know, one on each side. They had him somewhere, but it wasn't close by. As I lost sight of him and I didn't know what was going to happen to me. When they brought him back, he didn't look too good. He had a black eye, bleeding from the nose, and he couldn't walk. They were dragging him. They did a number on him. And they threw him in the car. And they said, don't ever come back again. Chuck and the power he had over all of us was that he never had to say, beat that person up who comes on. He would always throw it out there. And it was up to the people to pick up his message. Robert Navarro spoke in an earlier episode about Synanon's attempt to get classified as a religion by the IRS. He remembers hearing Chuck on the wire with someone from the security department. And he said, well, Chuck, I just wanted to tell you that we took care of that situation. He basically said they had beat somebody up that they had been looking for and that it was all taken care of. So Chuck said, you know, it sounds to me like you've been dreaming. This is a dream, right? They said, oh, no, 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 we got him, Chuck. And then finally, you know, somebody picked up on on the cues and said, oh, yes, yeah, it was a dream. It never happened. Everybody wanted to make Chuck happy. And he came up with this alert system called the Hey Rube. That meant somebody was coming on our property or there was an emergency. Hey Rube, hey Rube. Everyone would just grab whatever they could, even at Santa Monica. If you came over to the Santa Monica building then, pissing against the wall, you could very likely have the crap beat out of you. This is Jeff Becker. You heard him in an earlier episode talking about the sales team and using his addiction story as part of the pitch. We had spots all over the property where we were assigned to do security all night. In Santa Monica, you had different color hats. And the different color hats were your level when it came to security. Newest people had yellow hats. I was a step above. I had a red hat. And you wanted that. You wanted to color that. You wanted to be one of the boys. You wanted to be part of what was going on. I mean, if somebody came on the property, people went after them. And if you didn't, you were humiliated or you were looked at as disloyal or, or afraid or a wimp. I mean, the Synanon games were insane. And people were being challenged because maybe they didn't want to get violent. I'm like sitting there going, I don't have a choice. I mean, I'm working for the board. I was part of a a hay rube where we put somebody in the back of a truck and uh, took him off the grounds. And while he's in the truck, we were beating on him and stuff. 
You know, I mean, I did some crazy things when I was on drugs, but nothing like this. Then Chuck started saying, it's time to arm ourselves. The grand jury expressed concern about Synanon's recent large weapons purchase from this gun shop in San Francisco. Ron Cook. The head of security presented a proposal for some guns to get people trained on guns. And I was the financial guy. So I said, how many guns do you need? Synanon purchased at least 152 firearms, as well as a stockpile of ammunition, totaling $60,000. It was one of the largest private firearm purchases in California history. Well, if you took the guns, divided them by the number of facilities, divided them by the number of roads coming in, divided them by two securities for each person, divided by the reserve officers having a few guns in their personal possession or in the chest, the numbers were okay. We probably should have bought small amounts so it wouldn't show up like that, but we weren't trying to hide anything. We weren't building a secret army. He had a lot of people who were anti-guns that lived in Synanon. It was talked about in a board meeting. And then somebody said, well, maybe if the members of the board carried guns, maybe it would make everybody feel better. Well, it made them feel worse. Yours truly started packing a weapon. My mom remembers this. Ron Cook. He would actually wear a gun with a holster to the game. Now, that's bullshit. You know, you're supposed to be free to say anything you want to. Well, you can't say anything you want to if somebody's wearing a gun. Ron Cook was walking around with his holster and his 9 millimeter, like he's some big shot. He's going to shoot somebody. And Ron says, here, this is yours. And it was a 9 millimeter. And he said, basically, learn how to take it apart and put it together, because you're going to have to clean mine, too. And we would have these Sunday afternoon barbecues that were called the shoot. And people would come by and have a barbecue, and they would learn how to shoot a gun. It even got to the point where two people in Synanon who were there became county sheriffs, real sheriffs. They had the full uniform. You know, I was a deputy sheriff, right? Marin County needed volunteer sheriffs. I actually became an undercover agent for them and did some undercover work. Buddy Jones also became Chuck's personal bodyguard. If I was Chuck, I'd do the same thing. I'd get Buddy Jones. I mean, because people talk a big game, but at least, you know, I had proof that I could handle myself. Chuck had his own security, infrastructure, protocols, an arsenal of weapons, and even allies in the local law enforcement. But he still felt threatened. He told news reporters that he thought his life was in danger and that he had to be careful in ways the Kennedy brothers and Martin Luther King Jr. should have been more careful. Synanon has been growing for several years. Diederich seems to have changed and changed the organization as well. Terry Drinkwater has a background... Synanon was becoming a hot story again, but not in the way it was in the 1960s. More and more people were leaving, and they were talking. Synanon denies that children are being held prisoner Although on June 2nd, San Francisco police were called in to get these children released. Synanon had refused to return them to their family. The dramatic rescue of the Butler kids in San Francisco, orchestrated by their grandmother with the help of the lawyer Paul Morantz, made national news. Robert Moncharge had a similar experience. And so I had to make an arrangement where I had to abduct her and... Uh, and yes, I had to go through a lot of uh, changes in order to get my daughter out. Paul Morantz also helped a man named Robert Moncharch in a custody battle with Synanon over one of his daughters. 
If the name Moncharche sounds familiar, it's because one of Robert's other daughters, Julie, was the girl who ran away from Sinanon on her 14th birthday after being put in the punk squad. Paul Morantz helped Julie tell her story of abuse to the public. Here's Julie. A few months after I left, Paul Morantz called me and then he asked me to come in to do a deposition. And he arranged for some interviews with ABC News and the LA Times. And then the New York Times reported on it with lots of pictures. Morantz was quickly becoming Synanon's most persistent antagonist. As a result of his efforts and the growing media coverage, government agencies started paying attention too. On May 23rd, California Health Department inspectors entered Synanon's premises in Marin County with a warrant to investigate reports of child abuse and conditions in the medical facilities. Chuck Diederich talked about the California Health Department. If they want to come on our property, we will surround them, uh, each one of them, with ten guys twice their size within one foot of them and say, all right, inspect punk like that. We'll do that. Chuck had always warned his followers about the dangers of the outside world. But now, as he saw it, the outside world was closing in on them And I think Chuck convinced people that we were going to be attacked. When you're threatened, what do you do? You prepare for war. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. (laughs) And now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. Most people in Synanon were not violent and not trained or able to really protect Synanon. Mike Gimble. Chuck, I think he knew that from all the hey rubes that were going on. Hey rube, hey We were just a bunch of crazy people, you know, shaving heads of people that came on our property and pushing them around. He wanted a serious outfit. He wanted his own special forces. He wanted his own Green Berets. I remember this meeting where he developed and came up with the Imperial Marines. He started the original boot camp, and that was his way of creating an elite group of people who could work harder, run faster. This was his new boot camp. They were coming up with who should be in the Imperial Marines, and they were going down a list, and they went, oh, and Mike Gimble. I freaked out. I don't want to be an Imperial Marine. I went to Ron Cook's wife, and I said, look, you got to get me out of this. And she went to Ron, and they got me out of it. I was recruited. It was the best of the best of young men who were going to protect Synanon. It was an honor. Gary Williams was part of the last group of parents to have children in Synanon. And he was in one of the first groups of men to become Imperial Marines. We were going to show the world that we weren't pushovers. 
the old man and other people that were running the place, they wanted to have a group that was readily available to carry out whatever assignment they gave them. So there was the Imperial Marines, but then they also put together something they called the Sinanon National Guard. Robert Navarro wasn't an Imperial Marine, but Chuck liked the idea so much that he wanted more of the Sinanon men to be combat ready in case his elite force needed any backup. So the Imperial Marines started training more Sinanon soldiers. We did various drills. We had weapons training, and we had a self-proclaimed martial arts expert. He taught us this martial arts discipline called Sindo. We had a camp. You know, we set up tents and a kitchen. And so we were walking back after being out bivouacking all day for some goddamn reason and a snake crossed the fire road and somebody killed the rattlesnake and we had it for dinner that night. The groups trained near Chuck at the home place in Badger, in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains, which were filled with rattlesnakes. They lived in camps, endured wilderness survival training and conducted mock combat exercises. We did several drills where some people who weren't in the group would invade our camp, and then we'd have to protect the camp. Buddy Jones. One time I went over to the camp to visit the Imperial Marines, and the guy who was in charge of it sent one guy to get me, and he was having a hard time, so he sent two, three, so they had six guys that finally took me down. And I wasn't even mad. Chuck continued to make radical statements on TV, surrounded by guards with guns. And now, he was training his own paramilitary group. His list of enemies was growing, and it included the media. Most of all, Time Magazine, whose kooky cult profile had turned the public's perception against Synanon. He said that if Time Magazine planned to harm Synanon, then Synanon might have to harm them first. We never start anything. We never do and never had. But nobody is going to mess with us. Nobody. Ron Cook. It was nonstop. It really was a war that was going on. Chuck, he would say, you know, people shouldn't be able to get away with just doing things and hiding. Sinanon, under siege in what it describes as a holy war, has taken the offensive, demonstrating against its enemies, suing detractors, and threatening to sue its critics. Chuck sued Time and other major media outlets for libel. He won settlements against the Hearst Corporation and ABC, both times breaking the record for the largest payout in American history. But he still wasn't satisfied. He wanted to be praised for his contributions to society, not villainized. There was a move within Synanon to get him nominated for the Nobel Prize for having developed Synanon. Chuck had a plan for how he was going to seize the recognition he felt he deserved. Robert Navarro. Chuck decided that he was going to open an embassy in Washington, D.C. Because he felt, and he would say this, that he should have a seat at the table with the big boys. It was during President Carter's administration, and Carter had this drug czar And he said, we should be there. The justification was Synanon was the most successful doping business in America. In the summer of 1978, Chuck and his entourage purchased an entire apartment building called the Boston House on Massachusetts Avenue 
just blocks away from the White House. They took over the Boston House, which was full of tenants. And then they kicked everybody out. It was part of his notion that Saddam would be some sort of model for the country. And the best place to model for the country would be in Washington. George Farnsworth was a lifestyler who was matched with a board member when everyone changed partners. And his new wife was one of Synanon's wealthiest donors. She felt it was a downgrade. Her husband at the time, uh, Dan Garrett, he was the top lawyer. So he was a big deal. He got a younger woman. But George got a status upgrade through his new marriage, which made him privy to what was happening in Washington, D.C. At one point, Chuck was invited to the White House. And they had this lunch in the staff mess. And he was crushed. He was expecting to be sitting in the Oval Office having lunch with the president and this uh, drug guy. He was really down about that. Back to Robert Navarro, whose wife was Chuck's chauffeur in D.C. She told Navarro that the mission wasn't going as planned. The Washington, D.C. police, they got a report from the FBI that Synanon had made the largest gun purchase in the history of California. And uh, Chuck had said something about how things would devolve in society. That caught their attention and they began to look into it. And our actions there precipitated a lot of press attention. Chuck was out walking one day, but he had a cane with him. And a photographer wanted to take a picture of him and he swung at him with the cane. And the guy fell over a hedge or something like that. And so a subpoena was issued for Chuck's arrest. And so that was the end of the embassy mission. The mission to Washington was a failure. Chuck thought it would help him gain credibility, but it only made him more controversial. Now he was in danger of going to jail for the second time in his life. The first time had been in the early days back in Santa Monica, when he was punished for standing up for his beliefs. This time, he had committed assault. So he decided to get out of town. And then, he decided to get out of the country. Chuck went on the lamb after that. He and about a dozen members of his inner circle flew to Italy. It was a small seaside hotel in this little town of Formia. Chuck had a tendency at that time to think of himself as the godfather, you know. He called Dan Garrett his consigliere. Chuck was hiding out, but he was enjoying himself. And he was thinking about starting all over. He says, well, you know, we ought to start a a Synanon facility in Italy. You know, he was trying to rebuild. Forget all those people in the U.S., the ones that are trying to kill us, the ones trying to sue us. Let's just come over here and do this. Chuck and his entourage spent their days on the beach and nights having lavish dinners where Chuck would pontificate, just like old times. But Chuck's demons had finally caught up with him. He would bring out bottles of wine and we would start drinking. It was clear that he wanted us to keep him company while he drank, and we did. None of us drank as much as he did. It was binge drinking. At the end of the day, we'd have a big dinner, start drinking some vino at the dinner, and then drink some more vino. And then our problems went away. Chuck wanted out. He was trying to escape. 
he was defeated. Chuck had gone to great lengths to conquer his addictions. In many ways, he created Synanon just so he could surround himself with other people going through the same struggle, so they could go through it together. But his addictions found him again, even all the way in Italy, more than 20 years after his last drink. home, his followers were kept completely in the dark about the future of Synanon. Here's Buddy Jones and his wife, Lori. When he took off to Europe, uh, they never told us that they were gone. They just took off. They disappeared. They just disappeared. So we didn't hear directly from people very much, but word got back that Chuck started drinking. And just like that, it all hit the Joneses like a ton of bricks. We were on a motorcycle ride and um, Buddy just pulled over on the side of the freeway. And he said, the fact that Chuck is drinking, that's it. You know, he doesn't do anything halfway. Exactly what she said. He doesn't do things in moderate ways. Everything's big. And people are going to do what he's doing. And he's an alcoholic. Said, honey, Synanon is over. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. We thought when he came back to California that he would stop drinking. But he didn't. This is George Farnsworth. At the end of the summer in 1978, Chuck returned from Italy with his entourage. And he brought his old habit with him. We all thought it was a very bad idea. Some people, like his son, Chuck Jr., thought he should be, you know thrown out of Synanon. But that was a non-starter. That couldn't happen. Everybody went along with him, as always. Here's Marion Bordet, my dad's ex-wife. I remember having my first glass of alcohol in 
I don't know what year it was, but ever since I had been in Synanon. I had an intuition that he was getting a lot worse. I knew that trouble lay ahead. Ron Cook. One of his rationalization was drinking was to get everybody else drinking too, you know. For a while, it was a lot of fun. I mean, we had some great parties. Here's Zoe Bagger, who talked in an earlier episode about the neglect and abuse she experienced as a Synanon kid. They had Saturday night parties, and they were just like the most embarrassing. It would have just been the grossest reality show on the planet. People drinking, making out with people who were not their spouse, just every yucky thing. And we would be sitting on the balcony watching them do this, make complete fools of themselves. When the night was over, there were literally just trays and trays and trays of half-empty alcohol bottles. I was too young, but I know that some of the older kids would finish those off. Jeff Becker. I had drinks. Not to what he was doing, not to what Chuck was doing. You know, Chuck was falling apart. There are people that I think dragged themselves to death. Margot McCartney spoke last episode about how the Synanon game became a tool for manipulation. It wasn't a good thing for me to start drinking. It wasn't good for any of the addicts to start drinking because many of us had hep C and some people died. It might have been fine for the squares, but it wasn't for the addicts. It was just another door thrown open that had been closed. From the beginning, Chuck only had two rules for his followers in Synanon. No drugs or alcohol, and no violence of any kind. Now, there were no rules anymore. Synanon had always moved in the direction of Chuck's ideas. But however radical, they had always been sober thoughts. Now he was increasingly under the influence. And his most loyal followers were still very much under the influence of Chuck Diedrich. And I think that we could, without too much effort, get a reputation that would be all over the United States within one year's time. Don't fuck with Synanon in any way. I think that is the new religious posture. Don't mess with us. You can get killed, dead, physically dead. I was in Berkeley, and I was friendly with a woman who had two young boys, and she was interested in sharing a house, and so we rented a house together in Berkeley. This is Phil Ritter. He had split after the vasectomies, and now he was in the middle of a custody battle with Synanon over his young daughter. His wife, Lynn, had stayed in Synanon when he left. Their daughter lived with her, and Lynn had been matched with a new partner. Phil and his lawyers threatened to subpoena Chuck and make him testify under oath about what was happening in Synanon. He had been visited by two high-ranking Synanon members who warned him not to do it. On September 21st, 1978, Phil Ritter pulled into his driveway after picking up groceries. I came home and got out of the car and two guys who had stockings pulled over their heads and over their faces so that you couldn't really tell who they were started wailing on me with these clubs they had. At least a few minutes, they were beating on me. The younger boy had seen me drive into the driveway, and he always 
came running out of the house and gave me a greeting when I came home. And he stood there in the doorstep watching these guys beat me up, horrified. That young boy was named Mikhail Jolet. He was a Synanon child who had left the community with his mom. He remembers what happened to Phil that day and wrote about it in his memoir, Hollywood Park. He talks about it here in an interview with NPR. I'd always come out when he, when he got home. And he got out and he smiled at me. And they just walked up behind him and started beating him. And he fell on the ground. And he started screaming. Uh, and our, our eyes locked. And uh, they beat him into a coma. Phil suffered a broken arm, leg, and a fractured skull. He was in a coma for two weeks before regaining consciousness. I ran into a nurse who had taken care of me early on, and she said, I really did not expect to see you again. The police had very few leads about his attackers. Phil didn't say anything about his daughter or the men from Synanon who had come to see him shortly before the attack. Well, it was weird, you know. You would think that I would connect the dots and link Synanon to it and start accusing Synanon of it. I told the Berkeley police that I, you know, for all I knew, it was somebody who saw me take some money out of the bank machine. I just couldn't believe that my friends from Synanon would do that. Phil knew his relationship with Synanon had turned adversarial. But he didn't think Chuck, or anyone else in Synanon, was capable of such a violent attack. Especially against one of their own. He didn't realize how quickly things were changing in Synanon. Maybe. He didn't want to know. But he had committed several mortal sins in Chuck's eyes. He had challenged Chuck's authority. Then he split. Then he went to the police. Then he tried to get his daughter out of the community. And worst of all, he was working with lawyers. Chuck's list of enemies was long. But maybe even worse than his unruly neighbors or ungrateful splittees, or the lying media, were the greedy lawyers. We either think we have a good thing here, or we don't. If we have a good thing here, then we are not going to permit people like greedy lawyers to destroy it. There was one lawyer who stood out, who Chuck perceived to be on a mission against Synanon against Chuck himself, the lawyer who helped Synanon kids lead the community, Paul Morantz. I'm quite willing to break some lawyer's legs and then tell him this. Next time, I'm going to break your wife's legs and then cut your kid's arm off. And try me, because this is only a sample, you son of a bitch. And that's the end of your lawyer. On October 10, 1978, a few weeks after Phil Ritter was attacked in his driveway, a car idled outside of a house in the Pacific Palisades neighborhood of Los Angeles. A man got out of the passenger side and approached the front door. He returned to the car a short time later, and the driver took off. Later that evening, Paul Morantz pulled into the driveway of that same house where he lived. Morantz went inside and checked his mailbox, which was built into the wall just inside the front door and was covered by a metal grill. 
he could see that there was something inside. Something with an odd shape. Thinking it was a package, he reached in to grab it. And when he did, something lunged at him and struck him on the hand. That's when he realized what it was. Paul Morantz was bitten by a rattlesnake. Unlike Phil Ritter, Morantz had no doubt who was responsible. He ran outside and yelled to a neighbor to call an ambulance. He said he had been bitten by a rattlesnake. And he told her, it's Synanon. Next time on The Sunshine Place. I got a telephone call saying, come quick, Chuck is being arrested. Chuck Diedrich becomes the prime suspect in the violence linked to Synanon. And it's only the tip of the iceberg. I remember reading a report to Chuck's office. It had a section in it called, October is the month of the hunt. There was sort of a hit list. It looked like my dad was going to be next. As you look at the list, you know, of course, Paul Morantz was on it. Phil Ritter is on the list. And Bill Crawford is on the list. Thank you for listening to The Sunshine Place, a creation and presentation of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Executive produced by Robert Downey Jr., Susan Downey, and Emily Barclay Ford for Team Downey. Chris Corcoran and Zach Levitt of Cadence 13, and Josh McLaughlin. Written and directed by Perry Kroll of C13 Originals. Editing by Alistair Sherman and Perry Kroll, with production and editing assistance by Chris Basil and Ian Mont. Mixing and mastering by Bill Schultz. Narrated by me, Sari Crawford. Original music by Joel Goodman. Marketing, PR, production coordination, sales and operations by Moira Curran, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santrone, Sean Cherry, Lizzie Roberti, and Danny Kertrick of Cadence 13. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.